The voice that people think they know from Cary Grant, a lot of the time what they're thinking about is Tony Curtis's parody mm. in Some Like It Hot. So it's a massive exaggeration. Most impressionists do a huge exaggeration of some corner of a person's voice, and it doesn't really tell you what they're like. Uh, it was clear that his accent changed film to film. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ronald Young Jr. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June Thomas, I am so happy <laughs> to be here with you again, and I'm excited for you to tell me who was the voice we heard at the top of the episode. That was actor Jason Isaacs. And what made you want to talk to Jason Isaacs right now? Well, he's someone who I've enjoyed watching for decades. I was a big fan of his first show, Capital City, which came out way back in 1989. He and I were both so very, very young back then. And I guess now he's best known for playing Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter movies. But the occasion for this interview was Archie, a four-part Britbox bio series about Archie Leach, a guy who was better known by his stage name, Cary Grant. In that show, Isaacs plays the mature Cary Grant, but he was also an executive producer and he was involved in the shaping of the show. So I was keen to learn more about his experiences. Wow, that sounds like it's going to be a great conversation but I'm guessing you don't have all the fun right now. Did you save some questions for our Slate Plus members? And if so, what can they expect to hear? You know I did, Ronald. Our Slate Plus members will hear Jason's thoughts on the different ways male actors have allowed themselves to age in Cary Grant's era and in our current moment. The, the way that people get to actually mature has become a little bit different. And I also asked him if he ever likes the look and clothes of a character that he's playing so much that he decides to adopt them for his real self. And I think you can probably tell that I thought he looked amazing in Cary Grant drag. <laughs> that, that sounds amazing. If you're a Slate <laughs> Plus member, make sure to stick around for that conversation at the end of the show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you could sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get ad-free podcasts and bonus content like the segment June just described. You'll also get full access to all of the articles on slate.com. Also, if you become a Slate Plus member, you'll be supporting our work and the work of everyone at Slate. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's listen to June's conversation with actor Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs, welcome to Working. I'm very excited to talk about your creative process. Well, that's a very short conversation because I have absolutely no idea what it is. <laughs> I splash around trying to work out how not to make a fool of myself and stay employed. Well, we'll get to that because you certainly have kept very well employed over the last uh, several years. But the occasion for this conversation today is Archie, the four-part biography of Cary Grant in which you play the title character. The first episode shows Cary Grant doing something he really did at the end of his career, which was to go on tour to small venues all across the country, doing a sort of evening with type presentation where he would tell stories from Hollywood and answer the audience members' questions. Now, one of those audience members asked him, how do you create a character? How do you become someone else? It's a very good question. A lot of people think I don't. They think I just played myself. Well, I can't play Bing Crosby, I'm Cary Grant. 
But I'll confess something to you. He is a character. And that's kind of a, it sets off the show. But Jason, what's your response to those questions? How do you create a character? How do you become someone else? I think probably the answer is it's different every single time. Mm. I was like bugbear against this notion that the public have, at least in some actors, of method acting, whatever method acting is. My recollection when I was a baby actor and I read that Stanislavski book, An Actor Prepares, is that one chapter was about this sense memory stuff. Uh, but before that, he was very clear, find out what story you're in. Find out what the storyteller is expecting to do and see where you fit into the style of the piece. So I think that's probably true of my approach to see what it is. And when I did Death of Stalin, for instance, which is a kind of broad satire, the tone is everything. It wasn't about mm -hmm. trying to find out what Zhukov's widow said he was like at home, you know, when he found out that his cat died. It was more about how do I fit into this scene and, and uh, what's my job? What piece of the jigsaw am I? <laughs> In this instance... The show we're talking about today, I wasn't playing Cary Grant. Uh, I was playing Archie Leach, mm. and he was playing Cary Grant, and he really struggled to do it. Uh, and when he got home and dropped the mask, certainly when inside his front door he found one of his wives or, or the various people he had relationships with, he was an almost entirely different character and uh, an incredibly troubled and scarred and uh, fearful and controlling person who was trying to keep the nightmares outside so in that instance, I did what you would expect anyone to do. I read all the biographies. I steeped myself in his past as much as possible. I spoke to everyone who knew him or uh, looked at accounts that they had written in their own biographies or biographies of encounters they had with him. And the only piece that was missing was any kind of recording of him because the, the, in the films, he's this character, this kind of avatar he created. And I knew from all the research from the people I'd spoken to that he was pretty much the polar opposite of every adjective that's ever been used to describe him. This debonair... Uh, I don't know what that word debonair... I've never heard it used in any other context. <laughs> debonair, suave, lady killer, all this stuff. And I knew that he was not unflappable. He was extremely flappable. He was extremely mm. fragile. He was prone to rages and depression and all these other things. So I was desperate to find a recording of him, just a chat somewhere where he'd had a talk like we're having now. And there wasn't any. He didn't do talk shows. He didn't do radio interviews. He didn't want the public to see the mask drop mm. and I finally really quite soon before we started found an illicit recording made in the year that he died by somebody a student who was lucky enough to interview him over the phone and uh, the very first thing Cary Grant said was you're not recording this are you and he said well I was and don't he said very clear very firm about it and he was at a university radio station so he gestured to his friend to stop and his friend said, sure, nodded. And at the end of the interview, the friend said, I mean, I did record it, I'm not an idiot. And he hadn't played it to anyone in 40 years, and he played it to wow. me. And, and that was the first time I thought, OK, well, I know what he sounds like now. I feel like I've heard him. I, I heard all the different colours that he hid from the public. I heard insecurity, I heard belligerence, I heard frustration, I heard, uh, I don't know, I, I heard many things that uh, had been elusive. But if you ask what my approach is normally, I, I, you know, I, some people maybe who people are better trained always start from writing a biography or the shoes or <laughs> for me a lot of it often starts with the voice yeah because i'm british and as you know because you have your own fabulous trace of accent you, you, that in britain if you open your mouth once you've opened your mouth people can judge you and place you not just geographically but yeah. in every way mm -hmm. socioeconomically mm -hmm. but also 
who you're trying to be, if we're trying to be pretentiously kind of lift yourself up the social totem pole, or if you're trying to degrade yourself and sound a bit more street, all those things about your education and where mm-hmm. you want to fit into society are instantly, instantly visible or audible to everyone in Britain, not just people in the business. So for me, as soon as I hear someone, I feel like I've learned something about them, and which is why I was so keen to hear the recording. Well, it's interesting, though, because Cary Grant's voice was so famous. I mean, I'm old enough. I'm just a couple of years older than you, but you probably didn't spend your Saturday nights watching Impressionists on TV. I absolutely did watch Mike Yarwood and everybody else growing up. And this is me. Yeah. But Cary Grant was still in their repertoire. Yeah. And yet, you know, you've been talking about that voice. Did you hear something different from the Cary Grant movie voice on that illicit recording. Absolutely. Well, first of all, the voice that people think they know for Cary Grant, a lot of the time what they're thinking about is Tony Curtis's uh, mm. parody in Some Like It Hot. Oh, well, I guess Some Like It Hot. I personally prefer classical music. So it's a massive exaggeration. Most impressionists do a huge exaggeration of some corner of a person's voice, and it doesn't really tell you what they're like. I first, before I found the recording, I watched all the movies, uh, or lots of the films anyway, and uh, it was clear that his accent changed film to film and that sometimes that was him trying to be American. How about you, Mr. Connor? You drink, don't you? Alcohol, I mean. Oh, a little. A, li- a little. I mean, the audience might not have been aware. He's very bad at accents. So for all the other things you can say about his acting that was wonderful in different contexts, he really was a terrible uh, mimic and terrible at accents. And so his accent changed a lot from film to film. But also Jennifer, his daughter, who I spoke to at great length, let little nuggets drop every now and again. Which, like, for instance, he would correct her and make her more English. If she said automobile, he'd say it's automobile. So he was much more English off screen. Of course, he had modelled himself growing up as this... He had, apart from the fact he had a terrible, terrible, abusive, neglected, abandoned, mm-hmm. starving, literally hungry, starving mm-hmm, mm-hmm. childhood, he also was very poor and working class, expelled from schools, left school early, felt very self-conscious about how uneducated and undereducated mm-hmm. he was. And when he came to America, and uh, luckily for him, he met Douglas Fairbanks on the boat over, who kind oh. of took him under his wing and played shuttleboard, where they play on boats uh, all the time then. <laughs> he rebuilt his character... Uh, as kind of constituent parts of the people he most admired. Some of it Douglas Fairbank, a lot of it being the famous actors of the time. And, of course, those Americans in those days were all trying to sound English. So not only was he trying to sound like an upper-class Englishman, he was learning it from Americans who were doing the same thing. <laughs> so that accent is an interesting... In order to build it uh, with this wonderful dialect coach uh, that I was working with, you had to look at where it came from and what were the sounds he was aping and who he was trying to sound like and failing to sound like. So he would have thought in a lot of those early films that he sounded American. Uh-huh. Of course, he didn't. He sounded far from it. No, I'm trying to remember, but you, I believe, are the fourth actor who plays Archie in this show. Yeah. Yeah. But by the time you take over the role, in a sense, he has shed his Bristol accent you know you the younger actors are kind of struggling but were you conscious of of having a little bit of like just sounding a little bit different from Cary Grant in you know whatever North by Northwest pick a pick Pick, North by Northwest yes pick a card any card (laughs) um I I like phonetics I like dialects and and 
we look at it, it's slightly like an um, algebraic formula. You go, he had a little bit of that, he changed that to that, you end up with this in between. It's like mixing colours in a palace. <laughs> so yeah, I knew where all the sounds came from and what they graduated to and what, when he was tired or angry, they were turned back to. Uh, so I wasn't like I was trying to put a bit of bristle in. I was, every element, every vowel was considered, but also he's not consistent. Mostly, I'm really showing how the sausage is made. I don't know how interesting it is to people listening, but, but mostly accents are not the vowel sounds or the consonants, they're the tune. The it's the music. Oh. So, like, I'm from Liverpool, and actually, we, we shot this in Liverpool. Yes. If you listen to the tune of what I'm saying now, and ignore the sounds, ignore the vowels, because you can change them. You know, I've got relatives who talk like that, but I probably talked like that when I was a teenager, and you know. But if you listen to the music of it, that's if you try and ignore the actual sounds, you just heard like saw this on a wave pattern. What you'd hear is a completely Liverpool sound. Mm. Mm. And that, so the music of his accent is in some ways more important than the specific sounds because those were inconsistent. You know, Jason, when you answered my first question, I thought, oh, he's one of these people who doesn't do much preparation. And now I'm like, oh, ridiculous. Because I, I read in the book about angels in America, um, the word world only spins forward. You mentioned that you, you know, you had read all these academic volumes about sexuality. <laughs> and I'm like, OK, so what will he have done for this? And I'm like, yeah, you, you're a man of preparation, I can well, tell. when I'm shitting myself, I do as much work as I can. So... Doing Angels in America, I felt a heavy burden on my shoulder. I had friends dying of AIDS and I was knew that I was a straight man playing a gay part in what felt like an important piece. It turns out to be even more important than I'd imagined at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do it with honour. Uh, although I played, funnily enough, a few gay parts before that. And I'd, I'm an actor, so I had tons of gay friends. I really wanted to build him from the ground up and make sure there was not as few dishonest fibres in my body as possible. So mm-hmm. although... If you read further on that stuff, I, I did a whole bunch of intellectual research into sexuality, whatever the hell that is, reading weighty tomes on the psychology of sexuality, asking all my gay friends about every single part of their journey, <laughs> all completely different, of course, from each other. And then once I first stuck my tongue in Daniel Craig's mouth, it all, you know, I'm like, oh, no, shit, this is what it is. It's not that big a deal. I don't know why I was overthinking it. Um, similarly, walking in Archie Leach's shoes, I knew there'd be a weight of expectation I knew that Diane and Jennifer had put their trust in Jeff Pope and then in me. And I, I felt not only the fear that already there were knives sharpening. And sure enough, when I, because I'm an idiot, I do look below the line on, on you know, the comments section. I do read oh. uh, stuff on social media. And there were plenty of people already going, I, whatever he is, he's no Cary Grant. There's only yeah. one Cary Grant. They're right. There is only one Cary Grant. But Archie Leach, they didn't know. Yeah. So I, it was really out of fear that I read every single biography. I saw, I read the minutes of his business meetings as well oh for Fabergé and MGM. Yeah. I even read an unpublished novel that no one's ever seen before, a PDF that someone sent me about their life with Cary Grant, which is a secret life that no one knows about. I, I did everything possible, mostly because I was scared. And then when I first... No one had heard the voice until I walked onto the set and they said action for the first time. I don't think... I must have said it out loud to myself at home. I don't think I'd even had the courage to say it to Jamie, who I was working with on dialect. There's an element of fear in doing anything at all. You know, that's kind of fear is adrenaline and it's excitement and that's fine. Uh, but for this one, yeah, I thought the knives might well be out for me. And so I, mm. I did more work. When I did, uh, let me contrast this with Death of Stalin, where the brilliant Andrea Reisberg played um, Stalin's daughter. And she watched lengthy documentaries. She read every book published about her. And she gathered as much information about Svetlana as possible. And I was playing Zhukov and I looked at his Wikipedia page and there was a photograph with a man with 100 medals and I thought, oh, he's a wanker. That's, <laughs> he's, just a, he's just a giant narcissist, whatever else he is. And I knew that was the part to play and I went no further. So it depends wow. entirely on what the script and the context is.
We'll be right back with more of June's conversation with Jason Isaacs. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we wrestle with creative challenges and try to provide our best solutions. So what are your creative challenges? Let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to June's conversation with Jason Isaacs. You mentioned Diane and Jennifer. That's um, his fifth wife, I Diane think. Cannon Diane Cannon is his fourth wife. Fourth and Jennifer wife. is his only daughter. Yeah. And Diane Cannon is still alive. And she actually mm-hmm. was a producer of Archie. And knowing that, I kind of was hypersensitive, I think, when I was watching, knowing, being aware or sensitive about the, the survivor's edit. You know, she's still around. So her vision of events is the one we see. And I don't mean to suggest anything nefarious about that. So, no, it's very perceptive observation. But Jeff Pope, who first read Jennifer's book, then read Diane's book, then read a bunch of other stuff, approached both of them and said, I'd like to tell this story. And he needed their permission to get the rights to their books, but also just to to use them as uh, resources. And it took him 10 years to persuade them both to to participate. However, it was on the understanding that it was his version of the story. And they could discuss anything, and they had many fights over the years, uh, but it was going to be Jeff's version in the end, and they signed up for that, and they could have walked away. But there was a lot of controversy, a lot of things that one or other objected to. Uh, And then I came on, and I... First of all, when I found out what was happening was often it, I instantly said no. Who'd be enough of an idiot to try and play Cary Grant? Talking about setting yourself up for failure. And then I read, I saw Jeff Pope's name associated, and Jeff has, has a long history of bringing complex real-life stories to the screen in very dramatic and nuanced ways. And I, so I thought, well, that's weird. He wouldn't be. He wouldn't be stupid enough to write a biography of Cary Grant. And sure enough, I read it, and it wasn't. He was unpicking the inner life of this man. But I had certain things I didn't want to do. Uh, uh, you know, I thought that needed to be changed and didn't seem honest to me. And, and he's very collaborative. And, and I, I felt like I had to uh, be completely indifferent to whether it upset Jennifer or, or Diane. And they were very brave about that. And, and uh, we had a lot of challenging conversations. But what you see is not the version necessarily that Jennifer or Diane endorse it's the version that we think is true based on a bunch of research, including talking to both of them. So when, it, when they have executive producer credits, that's a right of consultation, but they don't have creative control over it. Mm. Uh, and that's why I think it's a more honest version. That's interesting because my sense of them was, that, oh, you would be kind of standing up for Cary Grant, you know, against, the, you know, instead no. of saying, you know, she experienced him as being fussy or controlling, but actually. No, June, that is an extremely diplomatic understatement. He was out of control uh, in his control. He, he changed the way she looked, changed the way she sounded. He told mm. her how to dress. But most importantly, he locked her in her room with padlocks on. He, if you read her book, he sent oh her in the end to an institution, ironically, like his father had sent his mother to an institution, and briefed the doctors there who were so in awe of him that they told her she could only get well again after a breakdown if she just did everything that her husband told her to do the way that he told her to do it. So this, oh. he was... You've seen all the episodes, haven't yes, you? Yes, yes, yes. You know, so there are many things we couldn't put in because you can't put a whole man's whole life in, in a marriage. Mm-hmm. And there, the things we left in were indicative. But no, he, was, he turned into a monster in many mm-hmm. ways. And I, I, when I was talking to Diane, who was 
terrifyingly and amazingly candid about things I asked her about, including very personal, private things about their life that, that you know, you don't need to see on screen, but I needed to know. I kept apologising to her. I could mm-hmm. see that. I've got two daughters. I kept on saying, I'm so, so sorry I had to put up with this because it was a time when no one would have believed and she wouldn't have wanted to tell the world what was going on. But she was a very straight-laced, quite religious young woman and she married mm-hmm. for life, she thought. So when she put up with this appalling behaviour from her husband who suffocated the life out of her in many ways, um, she thought that maybe she'd done something wrong or maybe she, so she did give up work even though all of her contemporaries worked. And she did give up her personality and her soul, but in the end he was so critical of every part of her uh, that it just became untenable. I mean, you couldn't get... One of the reasons I was attracted to doing all this stuff is that you couldn't get a more dramatic difference between who he's known for, what he did on screen, and who he really was. On screen, Mm. he is the most fancyable man in the world. Everybody lusted after him, men and women, for decades. In real life, once people were charmed and wooed by that character, eventually they ran screaming and had to get restraining orders or threaten them. Wow. Well, in addition to all this psychological complexity that you're talking about, another challenge in the role is that you were playing him from, I think, approximately his 30s to to his 80s. And and viewers had to have a sense of where we were in time by just kind of glancing at him which is to say at you and and so I'm wondering like what was the secret to playing someone over such a long period when the story didn't flow chronologically we're often going back and forward how did you indicate where you were in in his life in each scene well to give credit where it's due 99.9% of it is other people's brilliant craft so I look like an 80 year old because the prosthetics were extraordinary the different wigs and the slightly heavier set costumes made by these magnificent tailors uh, they can make you slimmer or wider or, or you know, and uh, and then there's all kinds of architecture using elastic and sticky back plastic and super glue and, uh, you know, just kind of little winches behind my head and neck. Yeah. And the voice got croakier as he got older and uh, his rhythms got a bit, you know, when he started acting when he was young, he was so insecure and he had come from vaudeville and he'd come from end of peer entertainment and stilt walking and stuff and so... A lot of those early films, those romantic comedies, the great one, like His Girl Friday, they're speaking at a breakneck pace. You're mad all you want to, Hilly, but you can't quit the newspaper business. Oh, well, why not? I know you, Hilly. I know what quitting would mean to you. Well, what would it mean? It would kill you. I mean, speaking at the pace when you watch a hemorrhoid cream advert in America when they do the disclaimers at the end and you go, how, how does anybody speak that quickly? So there's a different pace of him talking uh-huh. at some point. Uh-huh. His, he had the body of an acrobat, which he was, an athlete. He was always in his early films trying to get in a front flip or a back flip or a cartwheel. He thought that's what he had to offer. It's like Sam Rockwell always gets a dance sequencing because he's such a good dancer. <laughs> so he, wa- he walked with a spring, but I knew he was very bow-legged. So I walked on the outside of my feet. And, uh, but there's an energy that he had, almost like he's ready to do a spring. Well, as he got to 80, he wants to spring, but the knees don't quite work in the same way. So there's a, the walk was different, the voice was different, uh, uh, the clothes and hair are different. And then there's the fact that I'm not Cary Grant. And, and you're asking the audience early on to lean in and contribute in a way that... Let's get really pretentious for a minute. At the beginning no. of Henry V. Well, no, I, I'm, I am going to be pretentious. I like being pretentious. <laughs> on, on a podcast about acting, why not? You know? Why uh, not? Uh, at the beginning of Henry V, uh, Shakespeare's written a guy who comes out and says, look, mate, we don't have horses and we haven't got a battlefield, so you're going to have to meet me halfway. Just imagine them. And in the same way... Uh, I'm never going to be Cary Grant, but I can show you something of Archie Leach if you, you just generously meet me halfway with your suspension of disbelief. 
I say this with love, Jason, but you work a lot. Like there are 158 <laughs> entries in your IMDb filmography, another nine At in progress. At least seven decent ones, I hope. <laughs> no, but you're a big deal actor. You've played the lead in a bunch of TV shows. You've been in big movies, but you also take small parts. Um, sure. Not every actor of your rank would do like a three-episode arc in sex education. You do voice acting in movies and video games. I just kind of love to hear you talk about your work ethic. I mean, do you take time off? Oh, yeah, gorgeous. And then what happens is I turn something down and I think oh that's not that good and that's not that and the next one's not that good and, not, and then I go oh Christ I've been at home for a really long time I've got to do something get out of the house again and then something else comes down and I go well that's not as good as the thing I turned down two months ago but uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes I'm on a set and I go I must remember how much fun this is stop thinking I'm playing 3D career chess I just like going to work first of all many of those entries were uh, like you say there were small parts they were a week on something or a day on something because because I like them I mean, I, I, you know, I like the people or I like sex education. It's funny. And it was in lockdown. Yeah. And it was the first thing I did. I think it was the very first thing of that or The Great. I did an episode of The Great because I like Tony. I think it's funny and witty. And um, I'm not a gigantic leading man who only gets offered gigantic leading parts. I'm someone who gets offered lots of character things. Sometimes if I'm lucky, they're at the center of the story. If they're at the periphery of a story and I think either the story is great or the character is great, I'll do it anyway. Uh, I mean, I think it's true that there are people who play career chess all the time yeah. and, and the yeah. parts they take are meant to be building something but I'm 60 and I don't you know I'm not going to suddenly blow up to be the world's biggest star and hopefully I'm not going to be unemployed either and doing dinner <laughs> theatre and I'm somewhere in between and, I, and the next thing that's interesting or good with interesting or talented people uh, I'd like to do because it's fun my job I'm not going to be I don't want to be and has never pursued being incredibly wealthy, although I would have done some of those American detective jobs I was offered when I was younger and be on season 12 of something <laughs> where the biggest decision every day is blue suit or black suit. And uh, so I just, uh, yeah, I, I stumble forward without a plan. Often I love talented young people. I'll do first-time filmmakers or, or, or showrunners shows because I think they're interesting and exciting and new blood. I just did a micro-budget horror film in Canada because I thought, it was, I thought the script was great. I do shorts and stuff. If someone sends me a short yeah. that I think is good, that's great too, you know. Wow. You've been in a bunch of things that, you know, the, 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 it's not exactly a cult classic. That's not quite the term, but but they have maybe a kind of outsized following. You know, the show Awake is one mm -hmm. of the ones I'm thinking of. You know, it wasn't a huge hit, but it had hyper-enthusiastic viewers, sure. including a lot of TV critics. I was a huge fan of Capital Cities, which was oh one of God, your... Oh, my God, you're going back. Sorry. Yeah, I know. One of your first leadish roles. Um, you also played... I've, I have been in lots of things that are culty, and yeah. uh, it might have been nice to be in something that is not culty, but is a massive mainstream success. But, well, you, you, know, you played Lucius Malfoy. For instance. You know, I don't know. I was, I look, I, I'm not complaining about my jobs and careers. It's all been fine. And I have uh, enough money. I can't believe I ever made a living doing this, so it's fine. But I'm, something like the OA, for instance, yeah. uh, which was Cult. a huge hit in, to, uh, to some extent. In the, it's the thing I'm most recognised for on the street. I don't know what the numbers were. They're in the tens of millions. Event Horizon is a film that flopped when it came out. It's had a huge audience since. I just think if I keep doing work that I like, that I think is good, interesting, complicated, nuanced, provocative, uh, I, I won't look back and be ashamed of myself. Because the times I've tried to do something really crappy and commercial for money that I thought would be successful. Invariably, no one's watched it and I didn't get my box office bonus or whatever it was and I feel slightly dirty. Mm. Well, 
I have to ask you about Angels in America because my working co-host, Isaac Butler, is the co-author of the oral history, The World Only Spins Forward, which you participated in. And in that book, you said you were worried that nothing you'd do in your career would ever touch that experience. All these years later, how did that worry hold up? Uh, I was right. There's never been anything like it in my working life. I worked with a quite famous actress at one point uh, on a film and uh, we're having this conversation on the trailer, all the actors and makeup artists, that doesn't normally really happen. The public might imagine happens. It only happens on a talk show. How did you get into acting? What made you start? And she said, oh, when I was a kid, I, I was taken to this play as a teenager and I just thought it was the most powerful thing that had ever happened to me in my life. And so I went back every day for a year, keen for returns. I must have seen it like 30 or 40 times. And I said, bloody hell, what was that? She said, it was Angels America, the National. I said, I was in that. And she almost had a fit. And, uh, and I, I kind of felt the same while we were doing it, partly because the audience at the National Theatre in Britain, a lot of them, I think, thought they were coming to see a musical. A lot of them were subscription people wearing their velvet jackets. So, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't preaching to the converted. Mm-hmm. I remember that Salman Rushdie came. There was a fatwa out on him. He came with two members of Special Branch, the police special protection squad, who sat there and within the first five minutes thought, hold on a second, there's naked men having sex with each other. What? He would try desperately to look anywhere else in the theatre other than at the stage. And by the end, they too were doubled over crying and laughing and standing and cheering. And it just was a work of transcendent genius because it did that basic thing you want art to do. It completely engaged. So people were laughing and crying and thinking and hooked and desperate to find out what happened next and surprised by just the plot and uh, of it. But also it resonated. It was talking about what was going on in the streets, uh, you know, who this disease that was uh, rampant and, and ravaging through society and and the monstrous politicians who were dehumanising. And, and uh, in fact, it, I'm doing it no service by simplifying <laughs> what it's about. It takes mm. Tony's full seven hours, the two, three and a right, half hour right. place to do it. Uh, my parents' friends, who were not curious about seeing this play, they came out of obligation to their friends to watch their son on stage. I said, well, look, it's two, three-and-a-half-hour plays. I can get you house seats. Uh, and they went, well, maybe, 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 which one would you recommend? And I said, well, I, it's actually one whole piece, but I will get you tickets for both. If you don't want them, it's absolutely fine. There are queues around the block. I can sell them. <laughs> so those people who really were not suited to see it always watch the whole seven hours and... Uh, <laughs> And it was so powerful an experience for those of us in it too that we stood in the wings and watched each other. We policed it. We were the truth police so that nobody felt that their own performance was bigger and more important than this tale that we were weaving around people's hearts and heads wow. and convictions. And, um, and I was right. Nothing has ever touched the base camp of, of its peaks. Wow. And um, I used to think acting was about the things that you did. You know, the things that you did on camera or you did on stage. And Angels in America completely changed that. And now when I do sometimes go and teach at drama school or talk to people about it, uh, I just repeat the things I learned in that rehearsal period, which is it's never about the things I'm doing. It's never about this is the scene where you get upset, or the scene where you get angry. It's always about what you want from the other person. So even now while I'm speaking, what I want from you, the listeners can't hear, I want you to nod the way you're nodding. Mm. I want you to think, God, isn't he clever? I want you to interrupt by going, that's brilliant. Thank God you ended with that. So in the same way, every single piece of acting, every moment that you're ever on screen, 
you're trying to change something outside yourself rather than expressing something inside yourself. And that is wherever I'm stuck, whenever I'm not sure what's going on, I just think, what do I want this other person to say, think or do? And that's the secret to acting. Everything else is bollocks. Jason Isaacs, thank you so much for coming on working and tell us about your process. Yeah, such as it is. I've literally no idea what the hell it is. I don't even know what I've talked about for the last hour. Thank you. Whatever it has been, it has been amazing. So thank you. Coming up next, June and I will talk about accents, preparation and research, and what it takes to get better at at least two of those things. So stick around. June, that was such an enlightening discussion. First of all, I never knew that Cary Grant was a Brit, so this is <laughs> <laughs> this is breaking news to me. But to hear the type of preparation that it took for Jason Isaacs to play this role, which is so layered, sounds completely exhaustive. I don't think enough is said of the research it takes to perform a role properly. It's like it's real work. Yes. Now, early in your discussion, you and Jason were talking about how much is judged of a person when they first begin to speak. I think about that a lot as I think of U.S. accents. Being from the D.C. area, I can always recognize someone from here when we meet somewhere else. I know you spent time in both the U.S. and the U.K., and I'm wondering what it was like when you first came to the States with the knowledge of U.K. accents and then had to learn all the different American accents that exist here. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, I know Jason is clearly an absolute king of preparation. And to be clear, I absolutely stand that as an over-preparer myself. I, of course, admire that trait in others. I have to say, when I first went to the U.S., the most kind of destabilizing thing was that I have, or I had then, my accent has changed from being away so long, but I had a really common accent. And it was treated, you know, with disdain. I just got so much, like, shit, frankly, from my accent. Then I went to the US and suddenly I was, you know, a relative of the Queen somehow. And, you know, I was kind of getting, I don't know, lots of IQ points just for having an English accent. (laughs) I loved hearing Jason talk about accents because he's absolutely right that they are a national obsession over here in the UK. And as he said, it takes just a few words to immediately peg where someone comes from, what class he was born into, how much education he's had, whether he's faking the accent in some ways. Like, you really can't tell that stuff. And that's something almost every Brit can do and does. And while it's a cool British superpower, it's also obviously terrible because it leads to stereotyping and the absolutely mind-blowing north-south divide, which I have come to believe is a key to contemporary British politics. But anyway, that's for a different show. (laughs) I just said that every Brit can do it, but I have to admit, I think I'm particularly good at it. Uh, I suspect (laughs) that just as there are super tasters who have an elevated response to food, there are also superheroes who have a special talent for picking up accents. I've done it with foreign languages too. When I lived in Spain, I got into a spat with some Spanish friends about whether a group of people nearby were from the Canary Islands. And I was right. And yes, that was 30 years ago, but I'm still feeling really pumped about getting it right. I've just given myself a lot of credit for my amazing accent identifying talent. I have to admit that I'm not so great with American accents. Uh, The first place I lived in the US was Newark, Delaware. And for a while afterwards, I really could pick out that kind of Delaware Valley, Philadelphia, South Jersey way of speaking. 
But I'm sad to say that that superpower has now left me. And it just kind of doesn't stay with me in the way that, you know, I can pick out a regional British accent even when I hadn't been in Britain for like 40 years. So it's harder in the U.S. I'm fairly certain with enough practice you could get it back. I also think it's funny that you were mentioning having IQ points added and then you just (laughs) told me about this brilliant thing that you're able to do just by listening to people. (laughs) So, like, I think you deserve those IQ points that you Ah. got. (laughs) Another part that stood out to me was when Jason was talking about dialects. He mentioned the tune and the music of language as people talk. And that was really cool. Like when he started sounding entirely different, but just by changing his tone and inflection, I was surprised to hear him do that. But I knew that what he was saying was absolutely true. Is that something you think about when you hear actors speak when you're watching a movie or television show? First of all, that was a very, very cool demonstration that he gave. And he absolutely convinced me that every speech variation has a musical element. Like, I just love that. But to continue this focus on accents, if you ever see the sort of one sheets that British actors send out with their headshots and their resumes, there's always like an accent section where they list which ones they're good at. And it's kind of cool to see that British actors have to display a really broad range that they can just spit out. I always enjoy seeing someone on Vera on Sunday night speaking with a Geordie accent. And then, you know, a couple of days later, they're on Beyond Paradise speaking like someone from Devon. To be clear, those places are very, very far away from each other and the, the accents sound different. But Jason made me realize that the actors who do accents well don't just get the local variant sounds right. They also get the rhythm of the language. I especially think of this for British actors of colour who often get to do the regional British accents and occasionally what you might call diasporic accents, usually from the West Indies or West (laughs) Africa, you know? Yes. And the British show Death in Paradise is a classic example of this. It's set in the Caribbean And there's a new set of actors every week, which means that you often get to hear which British-born black actors spent time with their Jamaican grandparents and can deliver the dialogue in a way that doesn't sound like an actor doing an accent. And also which ones didn't. (laughs) The interesting part about that is that I just finished watching Top Boy and I was just blown away by the all these black actors in there and realizing that the black language of Britain is so tied to black immigration and African immigration and Caribbean immigration into Britain to England. So I I know that like that resonates with me so much to hear that. I also heard you mention earlier the amount of preparation Jason puts into a role, and you pointed this out in his interview as well. He even talks about how Cary Grant walked and how he had to adjust his own walk to walk like Cary. And it's some really extensive work that goes into preparing for this role and for many of his roles. And I know you're no stranger to preparation and research, both in doing this job and in your writing career. What is your approach when it comes to research and preparation, either for writing or interviewing? And what would you advise a listener who wants to be better at both, whether for acting or any other pertinent jobs? Ronald, I am so glad that you mentioned other pertinent jobs because (laughs) I think you're right that this is relevant in a ton of different situations, not just the arts or creative roles. You know, when you go for a job interview for any kind of job, having done the right kind of preparatory research and having spent some time thinking about what kinds of questions you might be asked and what you want to know from the person you're going to talk to, all of that is key. And on a really basic level, I want to say, you know, do as much research as you possibly can, but that's obviously very subjective, maybe not that helpful. 
I think what I would really like people to be aware of is that just because you don't see the research, you shouldn't assume it wasn't done. You know, I had no idea how much prep work Jason Isaacs had done for Archie. He like tracking down a 50 year old illicit tape of <laughs> Cary Grant speaking on a student radio show. Excuse me, what? I mean, that just makes me think he would have been an amazing journalist. But once he pulled the curtain back a bit, I could suddenly see all the work he did. So let me share a story. In the very early days of podcasting, Slate's then sister company, Panoply, was working with a lot of magazines, helping them set up podcasts. Back then, there were usually talk shows. And I had several conversations with really experienced journalists, that is to say, people who really should have known better, who had tape pilots, and they would come out of those sessions looking pretty much shell-shocked and saying, I've listened to those shows. I thought people just went into the studio and started talking. <laughs> and I had to say, no, no. Oh, honey. <laughs> they just, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, the, the, they, those people spent ages thinking of topics. They read a bunch of background. They spent a lot of time thinking about what they wanted to say. They devoted, you know, hours and hours to preparation. It's easy to mistake the lightness of the final product for the spirit that it was kind of undertaken in and think that it was a casual effort. So to bring it back to those other contexts, you know, you want to have a smooth flowing conversation with a person you're talking to about a job or when you're even, say, doing an annual review with your manager. But it will be a better, more useful meeting if you spend some time beforehand thinking about the goal of the meeting, mentally rehearsing the conversation to think about things you particularly want to mention, making a note of decisions you want to get made. In short, the more preparation you can do at all times, in all situations, the better. I absolutely agree. And I think there's something that humans just sometimes don't note that people who are the best at whatever they do make that thing look easy, whether that be yes. playing a sport, whether that be practicing Ugh. medicine, whatever. If they prepared enough, they make it looks like anybody can do it. And that's yes. just not the case. Uh, yes. I feel like personally, I get distracted easily. So I have to kind of prepare myself to prepare for things before <laughs> I can like truly dive into research. But I have several friends who really love a deep dive. So I enjoy reading their summaries on things that I'm interested in. And I found that I enjoy falling into a rabbit hole unplanned and by happenstance a lot more than I do formally researching anything. Mm. Um, but Juke, before I let you go, I'm wondering, are there any accents that you're particularly good at that you'd like to share with the listeners right now? Can you steal Jason's job? Ooh. Can I steal Jason's job? The answer to that is a definite no. <laughs> this is tricky because I do think I'm good at accents, but it's also like when you, know, you tell someone you speak a foreign language and they say, well, say something. And you say, you know, what do you want me to say? Kelka shows, I'll go, like something. <laughs> but like, so you have to have something to say. So since Jason did his native Scouse accent, let me let me think of, uh, so I had a friend when I was at college who was from that part of the world. And, and this is something she actually said to me. She said, I mean, I like John Smith, you know, he's it, it, nice, but I mean, I wouldn't go with him. <laughs> so that's like, you need something to say because he's right. You need to find the music or, you know, I, I it's funny, a lot of people, they think that, an Australian accent is easy. But, you know, a lot of people can speak strong, you know, yeah, Ooh. sure. But the really special one is New Zealand because they've just got really, really weird vowels. So they there is a famous thing, which actually I've only heard Australians say, New Zealand say this, but they'll say, I had six, six times a week. <laughs> <laughs> and they say this thing like, I love to eat fosh and chops. And they'll ask, 
Have you finished your fush and chops? And they just have the weirdest vowels. So those, those are my examples. I will stop now. Wait, but wait, wait, wait. Before you go, can you do it? Can you do a proper American accent? Do you have a go-to no. American? No, no, Ronald, I can't. I can't. This was funny because Isaac will make fun of me for this too. That like I can't do an American accent for all the years. I lived in America for forty years. Yeah. I can't do a quote-unquote American accent. And I once, actually, in the early days of, remember when it, when uh, websites were making videos for the first time yes. and we made all kinds of weird videos? Yes. And I did one where I went to a very, very reputable and really great dialect coach yeah. who teaches a lot of actors how to do accents. And I asked her to teach me an American accent. And she actually had me take a phrase that I was going to go out onto the street in the West Village and ask people if they could tell where I was from. And of course, the problem was that <laughs> nobody we ran into was actually like a natural born American in that particular neighborhood <laughs> at that particular time. So everybody was like, I don't know, where are you from? <laughs> and, but the phrase that she taught me was, do you have a little bottle of water? <laughs> and I mean, it's okay, but like, how often do you say that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, so no. Jude, that was incredible. I <laughs> I love that. I'm, I'm going to drink a little <laughs> bottle of water right now uh, in your honor. <laughs> that is all the time we have for today's show. And before we go, just one more reminder that if you join Slate Plus, you'll get to hear all of our episodes ad-free. You'll also get to hear exclusive segments on our show and a lot of other Slate podcasts. And you'll get access to all the articles on Slate.com. You can sign up today at Slate.com slash Working Plus. Thank you to Jason Isaacs for being our guest this week. And thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews, who makes every conversation musical. We'll be back next week with Isaacs' conversation with sound designer Johnny Byrne. Until then, get back to work.